This is WCN. The Whole Care Network. You talk. We listen. Content presented on the following podcast is for information purposes only. Views and opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent views of the Whole Care Network. Always consult your physician for medical and fitness advice, and always consult your attorney for legal advice. And thank you for listening to the Whole Care Network. I'm so frustrated by the way we define caregiving. We define it as tasks. I go to the grocery store. I take you know somebody to the doctor. I help my dad get readjusted in his wheelchair. We all have our stories, and by sharing them, we can truly show the power of the human spirit. Welcome to another episode of Gratitude to Latitude, Stories of Resilience and Hope, and a welcome to my fabulous, fabulous guest today, Deb Halsey. Deb is a founder, an advocate, an author, a speaker, a blogger, and so much more. I'm just delighted to have her here with me. I you know I'm a pretty lucky girl to be able to have these conversations with so many incredible people. Deb, welcome to the show. Jody, thank you so much and thank you for having me. I was thinking about before we, we started this that I think I've known you for about four and a half or five years now through your previous work with Hope Loves Company. I can't believe it's that long. <laughs> so... You're absolutely right. And I'm still working with Hope Loves Company. I'm a volunteer there. I'm just not a staff member. And I was doing some outreach prior to this conversation. But yeah, we, you know, we have a lot in common. And before we kick off the meat of this conversation, I always like to start with something that resonates with me. If you heard my TEDx talk, I mentioned the fact that I was kind of this quirky kid who needed some quiet time. I was an empath. I felt like an outsider. And I really didn't understand how those characteristics could parlay into a career into my, until my 40s. I just had no idea. And I tried to suppress them. So I like to ask the question is, who were you as a child? And is there any experience or memory that you have that really resonates with who you are today? And if so, please share. Yeah, that's a really a great question. I, as a child, and still today, am more of an extrovert than an introvert. I love being with people. I'm very social. Um, and I'm a big talker, which I think is kind of interesting, right? And so... Career-wise, I was in training, so the talking part was um, very natural to me and speaking. What's so interesting to me is who I am today is as much a writer as I am a speaker. And that is something that I claim with great pride and never really thought I would. Because when I wrote in, as a kid in school, I would get, I'm really bad at grammar, which is why I have an editor. So I wouldn't get the really great grades. And I was 
thinking, but I love to write. And so in this new career, being a blogger and an author, I have found my voice, but in a very different way. And it's so empowering. It really is. Do you think that being a speaker and an author go hand in hand typically? I think they have to at some point, because of course you have to market the book and you want to be able to talk to it. But I don't know that all authors are as social as I am. I think some of them are the quirky kids who love to write poetry (laughs) and who are very quiet and don't necessarily feel comfortable being in front of people. You know, it's interesting you said that because, and I want to get to your book and so many of these great nuggets, but perhaps when you are a quirky kid, as I was, but you also understand your purpose for those characteristics, then you do gain confidence and the courage to speak and the courage to be a voice and even to be a kind of an advocate because characteristics of being shy and quiet when you have, when your thoughts are so profound may have far more potential when you understand the power of them and how to utilize them. I think it's so interesting that both you and I came to what we were meant to do later in life. You were in your 40s? Yeah. I was 58. Hello. Like how much later in my life can you get it, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. So I want to hear about that. I want to hear about that moment when you were 58 and how this came to be. And you're so right that in a way, this is a reminder to our listeners that dreams and purpose can happen at any age. You know, I know a woman who didn't start painting and never even knew she had the talent until she was 82 years old. So you can write that book in your 50s or 60s. You can start a nonprofit in your 40s. There's always opportunity for growth and for purpose. So how did you find this in in your 50s? I'm a caregiver. I'm a caregiver for my mom. I was a caregiver for my dad before I lost, we lost him to congestive heart failure. And I lost my job due to caregiving issues. And I was going back, you know, I was looking for work, being an instructional designer and a trainer in a corporate environment. And I was at a networking event and I would start to tell people what I would, what I did and their eyes would glaze over. And then I'd say, but you know, I'm going to start a blog called Advocate for Mom and Dad and write about caregiving for adult children of aging parents. Every single person gave me their story. And I walked out of that room and I said, okay, this is what I was meant to do. And I stopped looking for a job and I started Advocate for Mom and Dad and I started blogging. And it was about two, two and a half years into the blogging when I realized that a bunch of articles, about five or six articles that I had written really resonated, and that became the book. But it was even longer before I claimed the title of being a writer, because that was something that had been discouraged in me as a child. And so to name it Mm -hmm. and claim it was really scary. And now I do proudly. Wow. So, So a couple of points here. There is no overnight success. What did you do? Because obviously you believed in yourself. You considered this problem solving, which I always say, if you're an entrepreneur, you need to solve a problem. You need to solve a problem. Pay attention to what people need and solve that problem. So you're solving a problem, but but you said two and a half years. 
So how did you know this was actually something that could financially, could give you independence financially and be a career? I was somewhat lucky in the beginning because at 58, when I lost my job, I wasn't going to get dinged if I, if I tapped into what I had saved to retire. And so that was initially what I was doing. And the slow growth of the blog and being paid to write and the slow growth of the book and the speaking, that's come over the last couple of years. You know, they say it takes four to five years for a business to be solvent. And I found that to be true. I'm in my sixth year right Mm. now. I could have given up. There were times when I thought I should, but not only did I find my voice, I found my passion. Like I always say, Mm. I will never go back to corporate. I would do this even if I wasn't making money because this is my passion. You're in that flow, right? When you're doing what you're meant to be, when you're utilizing all the skills that you were born with and add those, marry those to your experiences and what you've learned. You have a purpose. It's not a career. It's a purpose. And we should all be so lucky to feel that way. I know for me, everything that I do each day, whether it's coaching or speaking or reaching out to families affected by ALS or volunteering at Hope Loves Company, I do it with a smile. I'm so excited about it. And I know how fortunate that is. So thank you for sharing that. So I want to I'm going to share some statistics here. So your blog is Advocate for Mom and Dad. Some stats. And your your book is Your Caregiving Relationship Contract, which I love. Between 2015 and 2020, there was an increase of 9.5 million caregivers according to caregiving.com. According to uh, the same site, there are approximately 43 to 53 million caregivers. When we talk about caregivers originally, most people think of the elderly, caregiving for parents. But there's so many, so many types of caregiving. You know, there's disease such as Alzheimer's and cancer and mental illness and COVID and ALS. And then there's just natural aging as well. And so when when we look at these numbers, and before we get dive right into this really important aspect of the conversation, I want to ask you this question. Being in this realm for so many years and being an advocate and being a spokesperson for caregiving, what is the question you get asked most from people who are seeking assistance? Where do I start? Mm. Far and away, yes. where do I start? It's overwhelming. It's completely overwhelming. And so often, like I say to folks all the time, like, If you call mom or dad or you have a child and something feels different from day one to day two, or you're a young adult who was brought up by their grandparents, or you're a school child and one of your parents has ALS, if from day to day, phone call or being there physically, if you see a change or something that strikes you as funny, go with your gut. And even if you don't, think of yourself as a caregiver, once you start to notice those changes and you start to worry and plan, you are a caregiver. I'm so frustrated by the way we define caregiving. We define it as tasks. I go to the grocery store. I take you know somebody mm-hmm. to the doctor. I help my dad get readjusted in his wheelchair. Okay. Yes. Physical tasks, they're exhausting. 
But I think caregiving more than anything is such an emotional journey. And when you are faced with it, like don't, don't ignore that spidey sense that something's going on. And we're so busy. It's too easy to do that. And then all of a sudden there's a phone call, right? And now you're a full-blown caregiver or there's a diagnosis and now you're a full-blown caregiver. And so at that instant, even if you're in the field, you kind of go, oh my God, I don't even know where to start. And so far and away, that is by far the most asked question of me. Not always in those words, but I don't know what to do. We're floundering. Where do I start? And what do you say? Uh, What I really do at that point is say, well, let's talk about what's going on. Tell me about this person that you love. What's going on? What's your worries? What's your fears? And then we can start to get into maybe some of the solutions or helping them to think about a lot of it in the very beginning, frankly, is talking them off the ledge. That first call is just talking them off mm-hmm. the ledge. It's okay. You'll be fine. I'll help you identify the resources. We'll work through the emotions. It's really getting people to understand. And you know this, I will walk this walk with you. We'll figure it out. <laughs> wow. Thank you. Because you just said such a mouthful. You know, you're in this situation and Odds are, outside of parenting, we will be a caregiver at some point in our lives. And if you are preparing to be a parent, you have some expectation of being a caregiver to a child. However, caregiving for someone outside of that capacity is not as intuitive. So, so that question and that answer is great. And, and basically what you're doing is an assessment. You're doing an assessment to see how everyone's doing. And you're saying you're this voice that let's just begin, take a deep breath, and let's begin where we are and go from there. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think it's so interesting. I heard a statistic one time that I absolutely believe. Most people become caregivers in nine minutes. That's one phone call, mom fell, That's one visit in a doctor's office. You have ALS or you have cancer and you're completely taken aback and overwhelmed and the, where do I start? And your mind starts racing, you know, and being able to give people peace and a way of, you know, that there's that old saying, how do we eat an elephant one bite at a time? Like, just right. don't try and do it all at once. Let's figure out what's the one bite and then what's the next bite and the next bite. So I'm sitting here in tears <laughs> just because these are the holidays. And I just posted on Instagram a book called Bearing the Unbearable for people who are experiencing loss at this time of year. But having this discussion with you about caregiving brings me right back to just what you said. We're in a hospital, we're at University of Penn, and within nine minutes, at the age of 30, my husband gets a diagnosis of ALS, and we have an eight-year-old, I'm sorry, a -a two-and-a-half-year-old, Elena was eight when Kevin passed, and what is ALS? How do we even do this? And to have someone like you there to guide us is just, that would have been amazing. That truly would have been amazing. So again, thank you for what you're doing And these statistics that I just shared, 53 million caregivers. And 
we are getting older, we are living longer. A question that comes to my mind is, how do we prepare if we believe that at one point we will be providing care for someone? What is the best way to prepare? Wow, boy, that is such a loaded question. I think it's hard to prepare because your head doesn't go there. You're so involved with you know, the day-to-day life, especially if you, like you, are a young mom with a young child and all that that requires. I was fortunate in that my dad got a diagnosis of congestive heart failure. And and so for like a year, I was able to prepare. But even then, when he died, I still wasn't ready, right? So I think part of what you have to do is be not bury your head in the sand and just be really, really observant. And so one of the things in the book that I tried to be was very, very practical. So the end at the end of every chapter, there's worksheets or questions. And as much as I hate to define caregiving as a task, noticing difference in people's ability to do the day-to-day things both inside the house and outside the house is the start of you being able to prepare. Because now you're like, okay, what's going on? That doesn't look right. This is a little concerning. Then you can start to do some research and to think about it. There's so many wonderful online options and organizations like the Care Years Academy, you know, Rosalind Carter's Institute, daughterhood.org. All these places are really working very hard to prepare you and understand I will say the one thing that I think is really important, and it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with caregiving, please make sure your legal papers are in order. And it's not just a will. Mm. It's the power of attorney for finances. It's the healthcare proxy, all those advanced directives. Because if you start to put those in place, you're starting to think in a way that's very practical. And if you can talk to an elder law attorney, they can help you to do some financial planning. I think the biggest thing is don't bury your head in the sand. Like really, Mm -hmm. as soon as you notice something, not only start to do research, but start to have the conversations. You know, I'm a caregiver for a senior, right? So I, my conversations are things like, so what's it going to take to keep you in your home? right? Like, do we need to bring the washer and dryer upstairs? You know, let's talk about what it's going to take to keep you at home. But by the same token, it's how do you want to live your life? Like, do you still want to go to church? Do you still want to go play cards? Because when you know how they live their life, including what day the garbage goes out, you can create that list. And then you know, if you can't do it, you have a list of things your loved one wants to do but you may have to ask for help from someone else to allow them to do it. So what you just shared is truly where the advocate of your title comes in. I'll give you an example of that. You mentioned, do you still want to go to church? A lot of times when we think about caregiving, it's it's our thoughts of, you know, how can we provide food for this person? How can we make sure they get sleep? How can we? But really, the true or the authentic goal is to allow that person to have the best quality of life as he or she wants. 
And I am caregiving for a woman down the street who uh, suffers from dementia. And there was no care plan in place. And I created one. And I, and I wrote it in first person. And the gentleman saw it and he said, oh my goodness, I've never seen a care plan in first person. And this is a woman with dementia. I prefer, I like, I enjoy. And just that simple task of putting something, you know, this is from the perspective of the person who needs care. Jody, that is so profound, especially if you are caring for someone who has dementia. Because as the dementia progresses, what they're remembering is what they what happened and what they loved when they were young. So having those conversations now, what did you love to do as a child? What would you like to continue to do? Will give them such comfort and peace because that's where they're living. Mm. And without the comfort and peace, you have the behaviors that are so hard to manage. Right. It's interesting. And I'm really enjoying this conversation. It's so apropos. But, you know, I was thinking if this beautiful woman is 83 years old and I thought of a song that would have been relevant to her. So I asked Alexa to play it and she went right into singing it. Just immediately got up, started moving to it and singing it. And it was just pure joy on my behalf, pure joy watching this happen with someone who really was not aware in one, you know, one moment. And then the next, just so engaged. In that moment. And it just brought me to life. Of course, because (laughs) in that moment, they were back to being who they were, right? Like they're who they are now is beautiful, but to bring them back and give them, here's the thing about caregiving and dementia. And even if someone doesn't have dementia, like it's such an emotional journey. And if they can't express it verbally to get up and dance or sing to it is another form of expression. That's just amazing and life-giving for you and for them. Yeah. I came home and I said to my husband, I am just so lucky to do what I do because to me, it was profound to see that immediate change and know the power in it of being observant and intuitive. And again, using the skills that I have. So tell tell us please more about your book and your website is advocateformomanddad.com. Your book is Your Caregiver Relationship Contract. I love the title and I'm I'm assuming it's talking about the how it's reciprocated. You know, it's a contract and it's a relationship and the give and the take. It is. It, it is. All. But here's here's the basic premise and I know you'll appreciate this. Caregiving changes relationships. Not just with the person you're caring for, but for everybody in your life. And the changes if you don't work to keep that initial relationship of spouse to spouse, daughter, mother, mother, child, whatever it is, it can get lost in the caregiving, the the tasks of caregiving. And that's a real, that's really sad if you use that, lose that initial relationship. And so what I talk about is as the relationship changes, You want to be able to preserve it. And the way that you preserve it is, for example, by just what we were talking about before, understanding how they want to live their life going forward. 
and then advocating for them and doing everything you can to make that happen. But it's also about, because the relationship changes, that you're going to need to set boundaries. You're going to need to deal with emotions. You're going to need to ask for and say yes to help, all of which can be very difficult to you for both people. And so much as the book is really just about how do you effectively communicate and navigate those changes? How do you set boundaries? How do you ask for and say yes for help? How do you deal with emotions? Which is why the end of every chapter really has either worksheets to kind of work through what has been talked about or questions to ask. I'll give you a quick example. When I talk about asking for and saying yes to help, you know, I talk about why your loved one might be resistant, why you might be resistant, what you can do. But I think the biggest takeaway is if somebody says, how can I help? Saying to them, can you walk the dog because you need the dog walked is really is okay. But if you use a smart way, is it specific, measurable, attainable, relatable, and time bound? Can Mm -hmm. you walk the dog Mm -hmm. Tuesdays and Thursdays between five and seven for half an hour? Mm. Then they can say, I can't do Tuesdays and Thursdays, but I can do this day. Or they can say, I can't do it at all. But if you don't make it really specific and measurable and time bound, they can say yes and then feel like, oh, I really can't do this and do it once and that's it or never ask you again. So it requires you to really have thought through what is it that I need and have a list either in your head or on paper. And if you don't have anything that somebody needs to do right now, I learned to reserve the right to come back to them and say, you know what? Thank you so much. At the moment, I don't need anything from you, but I'm going to come back and ask when I do. Is that okay? And not one person turned me down. Mm. It really helps for people. You know, a lot of people will say in situations where help is needed, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? How can I help? And most people don't know what to do. So giving direction and giving specific information is so helpful. You know, it in the planning process, and it it forces you to think through, you know, we try to be super women and super men, right? We'll do it all. But it forces you to think through, can I really, now that I've taken on this role of caregiver, can I really do everything that I've always done in the exact same way? And the truthful answer is no. And so if you can be truthful yourself and say no, then you can start to say, okay, I can give up control here. Like I don't have to go to the grocery store, but getting mom in and out of bed is what I want to do or whatever it is. So it really forces you to think through not just what does your loved one need, but what do I need and what can I do? I think the most interesting thing I found with seniors, with elders, is they don't like to ask for help because then it's the awkward, let me pay you conversation. And the tip I give people come from my beloved aunt, Mary Ellen, who we lost to lung cancer. She used to buy gift cards and she would give gift cards to ShopRite or Target to the people who would ask. She would write down what the sum total was and when they needed more, she gave them more. So that whole thing about how can I pay you was just out of the equation. And she was much more willing to ask for help when she didn't feel like she was being like people were just doing it for her. She needed to feel, you know, there needs to be reciprocity in this, right? There needs to be reciprocity. Well, as someone who ended up hospitalized 
during my caregiving years twice. I was ended up hospitalized because of sleep deprivation, not eating enough, not drinking enough. That is all valuable. And I, I highly recommend, and I'm going to actually do the same as, as to recommend your book. Where do we find it? You can find it on Amazon, either through my name or through, it is available on printed, ebook, and audible. And I'm so happy to be able to say to you, it's now available in Spanish, in ebook and print, oh. and we're working on narration now. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, wow. Congratulations. I'm so excited. I really am. And you, as well as you should be. I mean, it's so much to celebrate. So this podcast, as you know, is called Gratitude to Latitude Stories of Resilience and Hope. And you are an example of someone who took a challenge and paid it forward in a way by learning something, learning about yourself, learning about what others needed, that this was a problem that needed solving. What do you share with anyone who, you know, you mentioned that you lost your job as a part of caregiving. We're in times of COVID. People are struggling financially. They may have lost their jobs how do we continue hope when we feel as though everything is falling apart? Any advice, quotes, comments about that? Uh, you know, I, 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 man, you have hit this. This was hard. COVID was hard with my mom and you've hit a stone. I, I think for me, it's very important that I keep a circle of friends who know me and love me and who I can reach out to. I call them my caregiver peeps, right? And I think it's really interesting that I have people in my life who have never been a caregiver and they don't understand what I'm going through. And I have had to put them aside for the time being, not saying forever, but from now, I've put them aside and I'm okay with that, but I hold very close and make the effort to keep in contact with in all kinds of ways, that circle of people that know me and love me and I can be myself with back to being just Deb and not just mom's caregiver and back to being somebody with a kind of offbeat sense of humor. And I hold them very close to me and one of my, I will say that one of the best things for me is my very dearest friend and I talk every Sunday night at 7.30. And we don't mm. simply talk about what happened the week. Our commitment with one another is we will tell one another what's the high of the week and what's the low. Because that brings it to a deeper sense of what's going on in our lives. And because we know each other so well, she can give me perspective about both that high and both that low. One of the best gifts she ever gave me as I was talking about mom after a long and hard weekend and just feeling like, I, I don't know that I can do this. It was whatever I said to her. And she said to me, you are doing a great job. Give yourself grace. Mm. That was such a gift. Wow. Just give yourself that moment. You're doing the best you can. Give yourself grace. Deb, you are doing such an amazing job. This has been a delightful conversation. 
And I want to share, uh, piggyback on that, uh, my late friend, Sarah Cooper, who I was um, blessed to be a uh, part of her life and her caregiver as she battled ALS. She always said that she couldn't do anything without her tribe in place. And it's such a good reminder that find your people and relish your people, love your people, lift your people, and make sure you stay in touch with them. So thank you so much for this great conversation. Again, advocateformomanddad.com is your website. Your book is your caregiving relationship contract. And thank you for spending this, this time teaching us and guiding us in a life of gratitude to latitude. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for the chance to talk to you again. This is WCN. The Whole Care Network. You talk. We listen.